Hola, mi gente. It's Joshua. As founder and host of the Basel podcast, I want to thank you for listening to this show where we highlight stories by, from, and about the Puerto Rican community from La Isla to the diaspora. Let's be honest. Traditional media is not lifting up Puerto Rican stories that reflect the nuance and beauty that exist in our community. And we hope this show plays a little part in changing that. If you want to help us share the diverse and vibrant stories that make up the Puerto Rican communities here on Paseo Boricua in Chicago and around the world, subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you stream your podcasts. Subscribing helps more people find the show and will help you make sure you never miss an episode. Leaving a five-star rating or whatever the highest rating in your app is and showing some love in the comments helps too. You can always give a donation by looking up the Paseo podcast on SaveChicagoMedia.org. All right, that's enough from me. Enjoy the show. Bienvenidos to the Paseo Podcast. I am your host, Joshua Smizer de Leon. I am joined today by Marisol Lebron. She is an associate professor in feminist studies and critical race and ethnic studies at the University of California, Santa Cruz. She is author of Against Muerto Rico, Lessons from the Verano Boricua and Policing Life and Death, Race, Violence and Resistance in Puerto Rico. Second guest we have today is Sarah Molinari. She is an anthropologist and postdoctoral research associate at Florida International University. Her research focuses on the lived experiences of debt and disaster recovery processes in Puerto Rico. Ooh, that was a mouthful, y'all. Marisol, Sarah, welcome to the Paseo Podcast. How are you both today? Good. Thanks for having us, Joshua. Really appreciate you both being here. You're also, I should mention, the co-creators of the Puerto Rico Syllabus. Sarah, can you say a little bit about what PR Syllabus is? And Marisol, can you share a little bit about what the Puerto Rican Studies Association is? Um, Sarah, why don't we start with you? Sure. So the Puerto Rico Syllabus is a digital resource that was launched in 2017. Um, I'm one of the co-founders, along with Marisol, Yarimar Bonilla, and Isabel Gusardo. And um, it emerges and draws inspiration from trends in uh, hashtag syllabi, public syllabi, and other forms of intellectual community building that center collaboration and social scholarship. And um, what the syllabus does is it curates and archives bilingual sources from various points of entry about the overlapping crises in Puerto Rico to help folks from wide audiences and entry points understand what's happening. Um, and what we wanted to do with the syllabus was complicate a lot of the mainstream narratives around Puerto Rico's debt that were emphasizing, right, especially back in 2016, 2017, a very uh, victim-blaming narrative, economistic narrative surrounding the debt crisis, um, and also U.S. benevolence in, in you know, um, instating a legal framework to, to solve the debt crisis. So in this context, we wanted to provide historical and, and other kinds of social resources um, for a deeper understanding of the crisis and also to highlight activist responses and have the syllabus serve as a kind of um, guide for self-study, but also as a call to action. Marisol, uh, Puerto Rican Studies Association, what should we know about that? We are the Association for Puerto Rican Scholars. So, you know, the way we kind of 
define that, right, uh, is folks who are working on Puerto Rico or Puerto Ricans, right? So we are diaspora and archipelago inclusive. Um, we focus on both. We encourage scholarship on both. And we encourage the exchange between scholars working in both of those contexts. Um, and we really try to center on um, mentoring, like junior scholars, creating opportunities for um, discussion, um, really trying to push um, the field in particular ways, right? Highlight narratives that um, fall out of the dominant framework, right? So at least um, with Puerto Rico syllabus, you know, we're very interested in challenging this overly economistic um, idea of the debt, highlighting the ways in which debt falls unevenly on marginalized, certain marginalized populations. We're also really dedicated to um, trying to really interrogate silences in the field, right? And definitely for the past year, we've been doing a, a really intense push around um, discussions of anti-Blackness within Puerto Rican communities, both in the diaspora and the archipelago, and trying to address that, the way in which that, um, you know, pops up in our scholarship, right? The way in which our scholarship can sometimes reproduce these super nationalist narratives about, you know, Puerto Rico as a kind of racial democracy, right? Or um, really downplay the centrality of um, Black intellectual production and thought and Black people to Puerto Rican um, studies, right? So that's something that we've been really dedicated in, in the past um, year to really like amplifying the scholarship of our colleagues that is dealing with those, those themes in response to what we felt like was a kind of, uh, reproduction of some of these silences um and then so our big things are we do uh we're we do these biennial symposia and um conferences and our conference is coming up uh this year in october in uh in um Holyoke. So uh, stay tuned for more details about that and we're working on the theme right now the call for papers and it's going to be really amazing and we're really really excited about it can you all just tell us if people want to learn more about pr syllabus or the puerto rican studies association how would they be able to do that both are on twitter instagram all of that um facebook so for puerto rican studies association um you can find us at rican studies on instagram and twitter we also have a group on facebook if you search um, puerto rican studies association PuertoRicoSyllabus.com as well, and also use hashtag PRSyllabus to uh, kind of get involved with hashtag conversations on social media as well. Love it. Moving on, though, uh, y'all wrote an op-ed in Truth Out. Uh, the article was called, New Puerto Rico Debt Plan is a False, quote-unquote, Solution Crafted to Benefit Capitalists. Now, when I saw this in my Google Alerts, I was immediately yeah. hooked. I said, let me uh, open this up. Marisol, I know you and I are Twitter buddies. You know, we've we've shared some DMs before. So tied the name to the article, read through it. Uh, great piece. Uh, we'll, we'll link it in the show notes if anybody wants to read it over. Some of the points you made in the article, I, I thought really stood out to me that we haven't talked about on the show before. Now, people that have listened to our episodes know we are no strangers to talking about the new debt restructuring plan. We, and as I was telling you both, Marisol and Sarah, you know, before we recorded, you know, we had people on when the plan was being debated before it was officially approved. We've shared panel discussions of people kind of reacting to what this debt restructuring plan means. 
So just to kind of bring people up to speed and, and both of you feel free to keep me honest here. I'm just going to run through some high level details just for people that maybe haven't listened to, to past episodes. So the new debt restructuring plan was passed on January 18th. Judge Taylor Swain of New York Southern District Court uh, confirmed Puerto Rico's eighth amended plan of adjustment or POA. The plan is the largest municipal debt restructuring deal in the history of the United States. And the Fiscal Control Board, or La Junta, uh, has noted that the plan reduces claims against the government from $33 billion to just over $7.4 billion. I want to stop there um, because I would love uh, Marisol or Sarah, um, you know, whoever wants to jump in here, um, I would love for you all to share what the pros and cons of this plan are um, and share a little bit about how Puerto Ricans on the island have reacted. Because if you listen to the Fiscal Control Board, it's all like gumdrops and, and rainbows and butterflies. Like this is the best thing since sliced bread. Um, but it sounds like when you talk to Puerto Ricans on the island um, and the surrounding islands, it's a much different story. So what are the pros and cons of this plan? Yeah, I mean, I think the your characterization of it as this, you know, it, it's been touted as this kind of amazing solution to um, Puerto Rico's debt crisis. You know, the reduction is substantial, right, from 33 to 7. But, you know, I, I think what's missing in that is... Uh, a larger conversation about the legality of the debt in the first place, right? Um, whether that debt should should even be repaid, how it was generated, all of those, you know, what it does is reinscribe the idea that this is an actual debt that Puerto Ricans owe, right? And I think that's what in our truth out piece, we really took issue with this idea of reifying the debt, right? This makes the debt um, real. It um, precludes many opportunities for an audit and abolition of not only portions of the debt, but the, in many activists would argue the entire debt has been illegally generated or that it um, operates under onerous conditions, right? So therefore should not be paid back. And so for us, this was the main problem, right? So the, the pro when you hear from kind of Wall Street and La Junta is that um, that's not happening, right? That's the pro for, for them is that, um, you know, they bought this debt for, pen, especially vulture kind of um, financiers, right? They bought this debt for pennies on, on the dollar, right? So they're actually making money off of, off of this plan. And even in the cut of the debt, and Sarah knows much more about this, so I'll, I'll let her speak to this, but even in cutting the debt, there's still a massive payout that's included in this is not really um, getting discussed in many of these um, pieces about the plan of um, of adjustment. So I'll let Sarah jump in there. Yeah, I, I would say that this is one of the cons and um, certainly the way I think that the public has been misled uh, by the media and, and by the control board and by certain you know government figures about this because yes right this is this is a, a significant cut it's um, kind of uh, promoted as an eighty percent cut in general obligation debt and, and certain other streams of Puerto Rico's public debt um, but exactly like Marisol said that's not taking account for a seven billion dollar cash payout that is going directly to certain bondholders you know, this month in March. Um, so I think an important question is what could Puerto Rico do and invest in 
for the public, for public infrastructure, for people's health, for climate resiliency, that, right, that is foreclosed based on this cash payment, based on the 25 years that this plan confines uh, Puerto Ricans to repay the debt. Um, so not only the, you know, the, how the public is misled in terms of the 80% cut, but there's not a lot of discussion about the kinds of creditors who are benefiting more than others, right? Because there's a lot of different creditor streams and bondholders, you know, bondholders involved in, um, in this, you know, plan of adjustment. And the ones who actually are experiencing the most severe, what's called a haircut, right, in this, in this terminology, are the small-time creditors, a lot of the Puerto Rican creditors, a lot of folks that had different kind of claims um, against the government, right, small-time claims. Uh, so, so the ones who, who were not experiencing the most, you know, significant haircuts are actually the vulture fund, you know, bondholders. I do find that interesting that of all the vulture funds or all the loan companies to give back money to, they're deciding to prioritize those in the States as opposed to those on the island. So even in this bad scenario, it's still worse off for Puerto Rican owned businesses. Yeah. yeah. And, 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 and working people. And, yeah. you know, there's even uh, clauses within the plan that provide for more debt payments through what's called a contingent value instrument. So if the Puerto Rican economy improves by certain metrics, uh, the plan sets up additional payments to certain bondholders. Again, these are the, the hedge fund hedge fund bondholders themselves. So there's all kinds of these tricks right within the plan that um, that lie, you know, uh, kind of un, unseen by the the media narrative that it's an eighty percent cut. Sounds like the plan is built where the goalpost is moved. It's baked in that it's just going to move. Um, dependent on the economic success of Puerto Rico. So current state, we're on track to pay this amount. But if Puerto Rico makes some uh, miraculous turnaround and is able to get some sort of income into the economy to invest in things like clean energy, to invest in education, to safeguard pension funds, like even if it gets to that point where it is becoming more economically viable, that positive ends up turning into a negative because that money that they're the the effort that they're putting into being more economically sustainable is just ultimately going to be siphoned from in order to pay back more of this debt. Am I understanding yes. that correctly? Okay. Yeah, I think that's a great summary. Yes. Okay. I was just going to say too. I think you know the important thing that you know I think Sarah's comments point us to is to actually think like not just about the plan of adjustment, that, but that all of the phases of um, La Junta under Promesa have been geared towards paying back these hedge funds and, and vulture funds, right? And so even if we look at something like, like COFINA, right, the division between senior and junior bondholders within COFINA had, dictates that Puerto Rican pensioners and other folks with claims um, that are entitled to certain repayments by the Puerto Rican um, government, uh, certain bondholders, they're at a lesser status than um, these international hedge funds and U.S.-based um, vulture funds. They, it's already baked into so many different elements of the repayment from the beginning that Wall Street was going to be privileged, right? And we, I, you know, I think we're having two different conversations, which one, we need to kind of have this conversation about the inequalities with the repayment 
at the same time that we're also having the conversation with the debt shouldn't be repaid in the first place, right? Mm -hmm. Because the debt was generated uh, under kind of dubious circumstances, right? And so, you know, we can kind of critique um, the way that the repayment is now moving forward and the kind of way in which it's set up to um, privilege once again, um, folks that have been benefiting from the beginning, which are these these vulture funds, these hedge funds, right? Um, the money is largely leaving Puerto Rico, right? Rather than um, staying. But, you know, we have to always keep in mind that with the debt, the problem is always that it's being siphoned off, right? Mm -hmm. The debt mm -hmm. is automatically, um, even under the best of circumstances, siphoning off essential money for public good um, that could benefit Puerto Ricans, where that money is being siphoned off from most, uh, you know, commonly is going to be from, from the public good, right? It's going to be things like education. It's going to be things like healthcare. It's going to be things like um, assistance payments, all of that kind of stuff, right? And, um, you know, we can talk about the big kind of um, uh, bomb with this, right, was the concern about the pensions, right? And there's certain protections for the pensions, but it's not complete, right? There's still a kind of danger happening um, for for pensioners, which is another vulnerable population. So that we have to always keep in mind um, that tension, right, between the kind of inequality baked into the repayment schemes put out by La Junta at the same time that we need to be like, why is this being repaid in, in the first mm -hmm. place? I think that's a great point. And I, and I appreciate you you saying that because I think it's spot on. I, we we A lot of media has been focused on um, this debt restructuring plan, but not enough writing or reporting has been done on how this debt came to be to begin with. You had mentioned, Mighty Soul, that this debt has not been audited. Um, we've talked about that on the show before, but would love to hear your explanation on why this debt has yet to be audited. What are some of the obstacles to preventing this from happening? So I'm going to punt that question to Sarah, because that is exactly her work. If I could just say one thing about something you said, Joshua, mm -hmm. because I think it's really important for us to, to keep in mind, right, is, you know, you asked a question about like how the debt was generated. And I think it's really important for us to think about the way that this debt has been generated. It, like this is not the past five years, this is not the past 10 years. This has been right. decades in the making, right? This is stuff that has to do with the failure of the ELA and the Commonwealth Arrangement and all of the development schemes that fell under that um, umbrella and the failure of a new development uh, model to, to take root, right? The, the, after kind of the petrochemical failure uh, in, 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 the, in the 80s, right? Um, and the kind of, there's been all of these attempts to, you know, peg the Puerto Rican economy to a certain kind of industry that have not taken root, right? And what that's created is this vacuum where debt filled the hole, right? The Puerto Rican government was in, um, forced because of the Commonwealth arrangement, the colonial relationship between the U.S. and Puerto Rico, and the failure of this um, development model to, to just rely on debt for the essential functioning of the state, right? And so this is the thing that we have to keep in mind is this is not just something that's like, oh, Puerto Ricans don't know. Like, you know, we talk about it as if it's like your grandma, right? Your right. grandma can't, you know, balance her checkbook, right? right? Like, we're not talking about it like that. This is not like Puerto Ricans overspent and they didn't budget. This is the, the Commonwealth arrangement, the colonial relationship between the United States and Puerto Rico 
denied certain mechanisms for the Puerto Rican government to dictate its own economic fate and as a result constricted the options available to it, right? Where the option for keeping the state going, for paying pensions, for paying salaries, for doing infrastructural projects, which as we know from Hurricane Maria was not able to keep up, right? But even for those bare essential services, they had to rely on debt, right? And we can talk about corruption being a part of that, right? Not everything went to the public good, right? There was funds that were diverted, but overwhelmingly, right, this is about a failure of an economic model based in colonialism that starved the state of, of, of financial resources, right? And that made debt the only way of accessing funds. You know, Sarah, I'll let you you explain it because uh, I, I know you you do a beautiful job. Yeah, just, just to segue, because I, I agree with what you, Joshua and Marisol have been saying. And, and you know, the, the story, right, of, of Puerto Rico's indebting is a story of uh, how racial colonial capitalism was operationalized in Puerto Rico, right, throughout the, the 20th century and 21st century. Um, and it's also a story about um, how the U.S. municipal bond market reproduces and functions through racialized geographies of debt. So it's no accident that Puerto Rico, you know, is, is where the largest municipal bankruptcy has happened in the United States. Um, so I, I think that the criticism from, from folks, you know, concerned about uh, the fact that the debt has not been audited is it's really a moral question um, because, right, this restructuring bill was pushed through uh, without the kind of full story being told, revealed, investigated, um, even though multiple investigations done from uh, different academic organizations, um, activist groups, right? There's a, a, a Comisión Ciudadana, there's a Citizen Commission to audit the debt. Uh, there was a public audit commission to audit the debt uh, formed in 2016 that uh, governor, former Governor Rosselló dismantled in 2017, right? All of these different sources have uh, since 2016 been finding um, and calling attention to illegalities and unconstitutional parts of, of the debt, certain debt emissions that they were flagging, right? Um, the question of access to information has been really interesting here because uh, Rosselló, part of his argument for dismantling the public audit commission in 2017 was that there wasn't enough money for it, right? Um, which is interesting. Oh, the irony. Because, <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. Right, this, this bankruptcy process uh, as of now, has cost Puerto Ricans $1 billion. Um, so the the purpose of an audit, which is a pretty kind of democratic liberal tool, right? It's actually the, the call, the demand for an audit in it itself works within or could work within an existing legal framework um, to discover and investigate different debt emissions over time, um, how the debt was accumulated, and then what happened right in that in that process. What was the debt used for? Um, and um, so I think that th this is a this is a moral question as well. Um, and the control board itself has kind of made various gestures since 2018, I believe, to uh, publish reports that cost millions of dollars. Um, you know, interestingly, not enough money for the public audit commission, but the, the, the control board can hire its own consulting firm and, uh, you know, folks to do a, a kind of investigative report that 
um, does not find any banks, individuals, underwriters actually accountable and does not name names. Um, so so they, they have tried to do these gestures and say that, yes, the debt has been audited, um, but that is drastically different from what the activists demand, uh, especially from the Frente Ciudadano por la Victoria de la Deuda, has been saying for years now, right? They, they want a comprehensive citizen audit, right? Because these institutional um, lines have, you know, are, are not, people can't have confidence in them that the debt will actually be seriously audited. Um, and people often make this analogy that's very simple, but it makes a lot of sense, right? Like you go to a restaurant and you get a bill and you, it's like leaving a restaurant and, and leaving your credit card without looking at what you're paying for, right? It's as, it's as simple as that. Um, so the problem, again, with the plan of adjustment is that it forecloses the possibility of an audit. It also um, endorses and legitimizes debt that the control board itself has found to be illegal, uh, $6 billion. So um, this is this is really astounding, um, and and of course uh, people are very upset about it because what an audit could have perhaps done, right? And this is within the frame of debt payment, which again I agree with Marisol's point that we have to also talk about um, basically the, the legitimacy question, the debt legitimacy question as well at the same time. But this an audit could have drastically reduced the amount that is in this debt restructuring plan right now and and the lines of payments that Puerto Ricans have to now pay for the next 25 years. It's just so weird to see, at least here in the States, the conversation being, this is a great resolution. Like this debt plan is going to be the best thing for Puerto Rico. And it's all based off debt projections. And like we said, it, 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 and the deeper we, I don't want to get off track, but the deeper we get into it, it's like, this is not really a resolution. Like this is barely even a deal because I'm a cancel the debt type person. I'm like, cancel my student loan debt, cancel Puerto Rico's debt, cancel it all. <laughs> that's like, that's where I, that's where my mind goes. Hey there. We want to take a moment to thank our partners, the Puerto Rican Cultural Center of Chicago and the Chicago Independent Media Alliance for their support. This show would not be possible without them. And shout out to our amazing podcast team. Learn more about them and the show by visiting our website, paseomedia.org. Enjoy the rest of the show. Marisol, Sarah, really appreciate you being on the show. I have a couple of last questions before we wrap up. Um, at the end of every show, one of our questions to our guests um, is, what does being Puerto Rican mean to you? Now, Sarah, I know you're not Boricua, but you're welcome to the Boricua barbecue. I think anybody listening would know you have more than earned your stripes trying to advocate for for Puerto Rico, for what's best for Puerto Rican people. So Marisol, I know it's a loaded question, but would love to hear your own from your own personal perspective. What does being Puerto Rican mean to you? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a tough question. So, I mean, I'm also, you know, diaspora Puerto Rican. I grew up in the Bronx and, you know, I uh, was one of those kids that, you, you know, spent summers in Puerto Rico and, and stuff like that. And so, you know, f for me, I think it, with kind of like my background and positionality and stuff like that, like the diaspora is central to, you know, Puerto Rican identity, right? I think that for me, um, that's that's part of what I try to do in my work, right? And how I think about like how I approach my own work, right? It's it's so much around 
trying to bridge, I think, that gap between the diaspora and the archipelago and this this kind of, uh, you know, there's a little bit of mutual suspicion, right, on both sides. You know, I think a lot of diaspora Puerto Ricans feel that feeling of, you know, um, not being Puerto Rican enough or having their Puerto Ricanness questioned or, um, you know, all of that kind of stuff, you know, this feeling of, of, of shame and anxiety, right, that this kind of diasporic um, positionality can generate, even though when you're in the diaspora, you feel really Puerto Rican, right, and you're in this, like, very Puerto Rican kind of, um, you know, uh, setting and milieu, right, um, and then on the other hand, you know, a frustration that a lot of archipelago Puerto Ricans rightfully have with those of us in the diaspora sometimes that, you know, get a lot more um, access and um, attention uh, around issues that actually are affecting them, right? And so, you know, I think for me in, in the work that I try to do um, is to really, you know, I think work in collaboration with folks in the archipelago, right, to, I think, approach that and listen to folks and, you know, try to amplify that in in the way that, that makes the most sense, right? And in the way that I have access to, which is through kind of like my academic work and, and stuff like that. Um, so that's definitely like how I approach these these kind of um, you know questions. And you know, the other thing is, you know, to be Puerto Rican is to really be supreme in the realm of memes, I feel like. And I think we should own that. So I feel good about that. So Oh my gosh. Yeah. Gotta love the PR memes. <laughs> I love it. All right, Sarah, what about you? What is being a Puerto Rican, what is being a Puerto Rican ally mean to you? Uh, well, first I will come to the Boricua barbecue any day. <laughs> Happy to be invited. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, I, I enter these conversations and position myself as a white ally or a white person in solidarity um, with Puerto Rican work and Puerto Rican struggle. Um, my connection to Puerto Rico is kind of a variety of uh, affective, scholarly, and activist, you know, affinities. Um, I'm not Puerto Rican myself. My my family background is, you know, Italian, um, but I did grow up with a Puerto Rican step family, and I began to get active uh, with organizing for Puerto Rico, especially around Vieques and environmental questions in New York. Um, over a decade ago, so starting around like 2010, uh, at the time I was studying Latin American and Latino studies at Fordham. I had a professor, Clara Rodriguez, who's a Puerto Rican sociologist, who really kind of shaped my intellectual trajectory. Looking back now, I, I kind of see it all, put it all together. Um, but coming out of Fordham and coming out of her class, I made a connection at the Center for Puerto Rican Studies, and that's where I ended up working for the four years after my, uh, my bachelor's degree. And I was doing oral history work and kind of really getting more interested in, in research, right, in, in research questions related to Puerto Rico. Um, so I decided to pursue a, you know, a PhD, kind of continuing my, um, uh, some of these questions, right, in Puerto Rico. And, and that's where I've, I've kind of dedicated my, my research time, but also a lot of my like activism and advocacy connections to, um, and it's one of the reasons that I think collaboration is, is very central to my work, as well as a more uh, activist anthropology orientation. So before we sign off, how can people stay up to date with you? I'm on Twitter uh, way more than I should be. So you can find me on Twitter at Marisol Oron. Same here. Uh, <laughs> also find me on Twitter at Sarah Molinari. Um, and a lot of my publications are 
uh, there's a link to my website. A lot of my publications are also available publicly. So, And definitely go check out their op-ed and truth out. New Puerto Rico debt plan is a false solution crafted to benefit capitalists. It is well worth your time. Marisol Lebron, Sarah Molinari, thanks again for being on the show. Thanks so much, Joshua. Thanks, Joshua. Now it's time for the part of the show where we share some of the latest Puerto Rican news headlines. But first, I wanted to share a few listener shout outs. In their latest IG and TikTok post, Latino Rebels shouted out our podcast and their video on the Borinqueneers, an all Puerto Rican military unit that became one of the most decorated units in U.S. and Puerto Rican history. In case you missed it, April 13th was National Borinqueneers Day. And we shared a pretty cool graphic on the Borinqueneers as well as our episode and video essay on who they were, their accomplishments, and basically the history you should know. So check those out when you get the chance. Shout out to Apple Podcast user Dive Book Reader, who left us a nice comment. They wrote, Great podcast. Glad I found it. We're glad you found it too. Last shout out is to Twitter user at Blanama who responded to our episode on the Borinqueneers saying, my grandfather Antonio Morales Rivera and my great uncle Justino were Borinqueneers. At Paseo Podcast, thank you for elevating their memory. I'm just happy that you listened to the episode. Uh, if anything, very grateful to, to your grandfather and your great uncle for their service. So thank you for, for the kind words. And thanks to everyone who continues to shout us out and show support through high ratings and reviews, you know, adding us on social media. Uh, you know, these aren't all of the shout outs for this week, but keep your thoughts coming, keep your reviews coming, and they might make it on the show. All right, now let's get into the news. This isn't every headline, so if we miss something, let us know. Podcast at gmail.com or at Podcast on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. I'm flying solo this time around, but Kim will be on next time. Don't worry, don't worry. Uh, here's what's on our list. Number one, the Associated Press reported that an island-wide blackout in Puerto Rico happened last week that left more than 1.5 million clients without power for multiple days. That includes homes, businesses, schools, government buildings, the blackout occurred last Wednesday and authorities reported on Sunday morning that electricity had been restored to almost all clients. Apparently, the five-day blackout was caused by a fire at a main power plant. Now, if you listened to our past episode on Luma Energy, which is, by the way, the U.S.-Canadian company that took over Puerto Rico's electrical grid last year, you'll know we predicted things like this would happen. Puerto Rico's grid is old. It needs investments. And most importantly here, it's centralized. So that means if something happens at one plant like this fire, then that affects every part of the grid. This is opposed to a decentralized grid that would provide protections against an island-wide grid disruption. Centro Periodismo Investigativo actually reported that parts of the plant that had a fire in this case should have been fixed years ago. But when Luma took over, they delayed the repairs to 2023. Luma also says that they are not responsible for any customer losses like food, medicine, etc. during the blackout, although they have said that they are investigating. Now, you should also keep in mind when it comes to Luma, they have made double-digit percentage increases to their fees over the past year, effectively raising the price of electricity for Puerto Ricans for worse service. Class acts, if I ever saw one. Number two news headline. 
Latino rebels reported that a new anti-choice abortion bill was passed by a Senate commission in Puerto Rico that limits abortions to 22 weeks. It was rushed to approval without public hearings. Not surprisingly, the bill has drawn outrage from the public, female politicians, and medical professionals. Approved by the Commission on Life and Family Affairs, Senate Project 693 would enable the law for the protection of the conceived in its viability gestational state, which limits rights currently held by Puerto Ricans to get abortions past the 22-week mark with few exceptions. It would also create the Registry of Termination of Pregnancy and Gestational Viability State, which would force the health department to compile information about the people who get abortions, their doctors, their nurses, and the hospitals that perform abortions. Both the Department of Health and the National Campaign for Free, Safe, and Accessible Abortion were opposed to this bill. Justice Secretary Domingo Emanuele Hernandez told the press, the bill, as it is written, lacks specificity and is vague. We have made some suggestions that unless they are corrected, that project, from our point of view, is unconstitutional. Critics of the bill have also pointed out that the 22-week mark set out by the bill is arbitrary, as fetal viability is based on a variety of factors, not just gestational time. They also point to the fact that abortion restrictions hurt women's health and increase the risk of maternal death. Opposition to PS 693 has worked as a unifying force for female politicians across the political spectrum, not only in the diaspora, but on La Isla as well. On Monday, April 4th, female politicians from the PPD, PMP, PIP, and MVC gathered outside the Capitol to denounce the anti-choice bill. Even though the bill's co-authors steadfastly insisted the bill did not need public hearings as they initially did when they pushed this through, they were eventually forced to yield due to immense pressure from different sectors in Puerto Rico, including the ACLU, the Department of Health, the College of Physicians and Surgeons, politicians across different parties, and pro-choice activists. Public hearings for PS 693 will be held on April 26th, April 29th, and April 30th, so stay tuned for those. Number three. The Hill reported that Puerto Rico's healthcare industry is raising the alarm over disparities in how the territory's Medicare plans are funded, hurting the quality of services for around 630,000 senior citizens. In a joint letter to Health and Human Services Secretary Xavier Barcera and Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services Administrator Chiquita Brooks Lasur, a coalition of Puerto Rican medical, pharmaceutical, hospital, business, and insurance associations called on the Biden administration to close a funding gap that's undercutting the island's medical services. In their letter, the groups referenced an explicit campaign promise made by President Biden to address the territory's growing Medicare funding gap. It's important to note that Puerto Rico's Medicare system is heavily reliant on Medicare Advantage, which is a program that allows private insurers to provide medical services. Now, more than 90% of Puerto Ricans who use Medicare rely on Medicare Advantage programs, but the federal government funds Puerto Rico's Medicare Advantage at 42% below the average national rate. That gap, by the way, has nearly doubled over the past decade. In 2011, Puerto Rico's Medicare Advantage funding lagged 24% behind the national rate. And Puerto Rico not only lags behind states, but behind other territories as well. The discrepancy in funding rates for Puerto Rico has contributed to underservicing for seniors and other Medicare beneficiaries on the island, but also 
to emigration from the island, both by patients seeking better care and of medical professionals seeking better working conditions. Puerto Rico's healthcare industry has long warned that continued shortchanging of the island's medical system could prompt more outmigration with costs to the states on the mainland U.S. Now, a reduction in the funding gap, they argue, would instead prompt seniors and medical professionals to stay on La Isla, where costs of living are lower and every Medicare dollar can be stretched further. Last story of the day for y'all, and I hear you. You probably listened to the last three. I'm like, man, these are really sad stories. All right, don't worry. We're going to end on a happy one here. Um, CNN reported that Jennifer Lopez revealed her and Ben Affleck are now engaged. See, that's a happy thing. Now, if you weren't a fan of Benifer back in the day, I'm sorry, you're going to hate this news. Maybe this is just keeping on track with just bad news that you're hearing in your day. But I think this is good news. I think this is happy news. Uh, JLo actually announced to her fans in, I guess, a fan newsletter. Didn't know those things were still going on. Uh, Kim was perplexed as well when, when we were talking about this. But apparently she mentioned in her in her fan newsletter that Ben Affleck proposed to her with a green diamond engagement ring in his hand as she was taking a bubble bath. Uh, she called herself an Affleck, quote unquote, two very lucky people who got a second chance at true love. Now, I got a shout out to all the people listening and in our lives who got a second chance at love. Those opportunities are rare, very few and far between. So if you're able to get it, you get it. Uh, so shout out to, to J-Lo and Ben Affleck on their engagement. All right, that's all I have for now. In our next episode, I'll be sharing some fantastic ecological facts about Puerto Rico in honor of Earth Day. I'll also share my discussion with scientist Monica Felu Moher to discuss her award-winning program, Aquí Nos Cuidamos and how the methods she used in that program successfully blended the worlds of community organizing and scientific research together to have a positive impact in Puerto Rican neighborhoods on La Isla that were affected by the COVID-19 pandemic. We may also have a second guest from Casa Pueblo on the show. They do a lot of work around solar energy on La Isla, uh, though the blackout may have delayed those plans. But either way, it's going to be a really fun episode. So I'm really looking forward to, to sharing that with you all. While you wait for our next episode, and by the way, it's going to come out next week, so a little bit of a shorter wait uh, this time around. Uh, but give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcast as you are waiting for that next episode. Of course, if you don't use Apple Podcasts, if there's a top rating on whatever app you're listening to this on, give us whatever that highest rating is. Please give us that sweet, sweet rating. Uh, it really helps other people find the show. Leaving a positive comment helps too. Oh, and before I sign off, just want to say shout out to Josue and Joel Ortiz. Uh, they are a dynamic duo helping us edit our videos. Of course, our video interviews end up getting posted on our YouTube channel. Uh, shortly after, like a few days after the audio drops. So as you're watching those videos, know that we have two talented guys behind the scenes working to really stitch those videos together. And we're going to be uh, sharing some clips, some throwback clips uh, from past episodes uh, that predate the YouTube channel, um, that were post the YouTube channel. Uh, you might have seen them flying around on our social media accounts on Instagram, Facebook, and, and Twitter over the over the months. But uh, we're going to consolidate those, put those on YouTube so you can find them all in one place. All right. Until then, see you all next week. Cuídate. <laughs>